Hey there, screen testers. Before we get started with this week's episode reviewing A Streetcar Named Desire, just a quick content note that this film involves sexual assault, domestic violence, homophobia, and suicide. So please proceed with caution. You must be Stanley. I'm Blanche. Oh, you're still sister. Yes. Oh, hi. Hey, where's the little woman? Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week we watched the second of the 1951 nominees, A Streetcar Named Desire, starring Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee. And... Yeah, (laughs) we were just saying that we're both having kind of complicated weeks in real life, and I could have used a movie that was a a little less complicated to talk about. Just not the vibe I wanted, but also, (laughs) like, I don't know. I was thinking about how this was a thing I was expecting to have happen way earlier in the project. I think this is our first movie I know is objectively great, but I didn't like watching very much. I just didn't have a great time with it. I feel like we certainly have had something else before that fit that description. I th- um, maybe, but I'm I've been I'm struggling to think of it. I'm struggling to find one off the top of my head, but. Uh, yeah, it's a real fucking bummer of a movie uh, based on a real fucking bummer of a play. Yeah. But it's very good. I mentioned in two earlier episodes that I have a lot of feelings about this movie. And one of the things I want to make sure to, or I guess two of the things I want to make sure to touch on are changes from the Tennessee Williams stage play, one of which I don't like and one of which I actually think makes the story better. Mm-hmm. And gives it some measure of hope, question mark? <laughs> I was going to say, so the ending is the good one. Yes. What's the bad change? We'll get into it okay. when we go through the plot. I will point it out. Do you want me to start? Because I, I know this was a little rough for you. Yeah. <laughs> and I've seen it like 12 times because I was a dramatic literature major. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like if you do the plot outline, there will be like 80% less weary sighing, which is not the best energy to bring to a plot outline. Uh, Yeah, I mean, maybe not the worst to bring to this story, though. So our story takes place in New Orleans. It is named after a streetcar in New Orleans that Vivian Lee's character, Blanche, takes in to the city to visit and stay with her sister, Stella, and her sister's husband, Stanley. Stanley is played by Marlon Brando, and Kim Hunter plays Stella. Vivian Lee's character, Blanche, sorry. (laughs) Blanche is very much a frozen-in-time Southern Belle type. She and Stella were raised on a plantation basically called Belle Reve which has 
been reclaimed by the bank because of expenses incurred by the illness and eventual death of Blanche and Stella's parents. None of this plays out on screen. We just learn about it as the movie goes along. Stella has married Stanley Kowalski, who is kind of a low-class guy who treats her like shit, but is very hot. Yes. Is really, like, that is the whole thing going on here. Stanley and Blanche do not get along, basically from jump. He thinks that she's constantly putting on airs and doesn't trust her and thinks that basically Belle Reeve was probably sold and she kept some money from it that she's not giving to her sister and starts investigating and asking around about Blanche Dubois. Stanley has a friend whose name is Mitch and... They work together at some factory. Blanche and Mitch meet and start dating. And he develops a thing for her. She really is pushing for marriage. He's like ready to marry her, especially after she tells this story. And here's the difference from the play about her first husband, who was um, who she married when she was very young. And who killed himself after she discovered him having an affair with a man. In the film, because it is the Hayes Code, this has to be very, very tiptoed around. And is much more explicit in the play. And Blanche basically tells him that he disgusts her. And at this point in time... It was a very dangerous situation to be in to have been discovered to be gay. And Blanche was not exactly understanding about the whole situation. But she feels incredibly bad about the fact that her husband, who she genuinely does seem to love, killed himself over this. But Mitch feels a tremendous amount of empathy for her and agrees to marry her. Until Stanley finds out that the reason that Blanche has come to New Orleans from wherever it is that she was before, which is their town of Ariel, Mississippi, yeah, which is not a real place, is because she got fired from her teaching job because she was involved with a 17-year-old student. It's not clear if he was her student or not, but basically when the school board became aware of this, they were like, you are not fit to teach high school kids get out <laughs> yeah which is fair i don't have a problem with her getting fired for that so first of all mitch stands her up and then stanley and stella go out somewhere do they go bowling stanley is going to go bowling but uh stella goes into labor oh that's, that's right the yes. thing that like breaks up the the fight there right the not marlon brando is hot as shit reason why stella is sticking around is that she is pregnant yes not very visibly, which I find interesting. <laughs> no. I have a lot of stuff to talk about, about the play versus how people are playing things. But that is one of them of just like, the movie really downplays her pregnancy in favor of Marlon Brando being hot, which I think is actually a weirdly good choice. One, because he is. Yes. But also it was weird that she goes into labor when she doesn't look pregnant during the film at all. Yeah, that's kind of the biggest problem with that choice. Yeah. yeah. So Stella goes into labor. Stanley takes her to the hospital. And the doctor apparently is like, hey, you can get out of here because she's not going to have the kid until the morning. 
while everybody is gone, Mitch comes over and basically chews out Blanche and then attempts to assault her. I think it's kind of implied that he is trying to get into like a he's trying to make her a side thing because he thinks that she is amenable to that. And, like, terrible misreading of what she has just confessed to. Oh, I definitely thought he was trying to rape her. Well, we're gonna get into what that looks like real soon in this Uh, film. Anyway, so Blanche loses her shit over this, which is, like, pretty fair. And he also does this whole thing where he says, I've never seen you in the light, which is true. She's very self-conscious about her age and lies about it all the time. And so he rough houses with her until he can get her into some light and she's crying and screaming and then mitch leaves she gets dressed up in like a tiara and some of her fancy clothes and then stanley comes home and blanche tells him that the reason that she's dressed up is because she's had a visit from an old admirer who wants to take her to the caribbean or something and stanley sees through this and then rapes her because yeah yeah see actually there you go i had the sigh yeah yeah so blanche tells stella what happened after stella comes home from the hospital with a brand new baby stella doesn't believe her at first and then blanche just has a complete fucking nervous breakdown which is understandable, but doesn't have anywhere to go. So is still living in their tiny apartment. And then uh, some doctors come to take her away to a mental hospital. There's a poker game happening at the same time. (laughs) Mitch is there. And apparently Mitch knows about the rape, which is wild to me. He says something or is upset enough at everything that is transpiring with Blanche being hauled away to an institution that Stella finally understands that actually Blanche was telling her the truth, takes the baby and runs upstairs to the upstairs neighbors. The end. Yeah. I, yeah. I want to kind of not say that Mitch is a good guy, but that I read him as slightly more interestingly a good guy or like slightly differently a bad guy than stanley is in a way i found interesting because i didn't read that last scene as him knowing about the rape so much as him kind of intuiting that stanley had done something and then everybody kind of immediately going oh that makes sense like oh stanley is a complete dirtbag in exactly that way more than it ever being explicitly explained to him that makes more sense than stanley being like hey i raped my sister-in-law which would be very fucking weird to just tell your friends yeah but also stanley is kind of a shithead so i don't know Yeah, I want to talk about the play, which I have seen a couple of times, versus the movie, which I am seeing for the first time. And I just want to talk about sort of Tennessee Williams in general. Um, And I'm sort of conflicted about what order to do that in. Mm, Just talk about all of them at the same time. They'll all lead into each other. Talk about the play. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. So I really get what you're saying about making the homosexuality of 
Blanche's husband, very lightly implicit rather than explicit. It doesn't actually hugely bother me. I think it has some interesting effects because I think it changes a little bit the nature of Mitch's relationship with Blanche if he just doesn't understand that what's going on. And I think it changes the nature of Blanche's guilt in an interesting way if she can't talk about it explicitly. So I think it's, for me, a little bit of sort of it all comes out in the wash. It's a little bit of a net. I don't really know what it does to the play, but I do think that you're right that it gives a very different feeling to Blanche's sort of tragic backstory than what happens in the play, where it feels like this sort of huge explosion of you finally understanding Blanche Dubois in the play. Whereas in this, there's still this sort of sense of like, oh, she's still kind of blocking stuff. She's still not actually dealing with this. I don't know. This is sort of my general problem with Tennessee Williams, and that I think is more of a problem with the play than with how it is performed in this movie that I think fixes a lot of it, is kind of for all of his rep of writing female characters... I don't actually like how Tennessee Williams writes female characters very much. His reputation for writing women is that he sucks at it, though. Like, he does it, but... (laughs) Yeah, I think his reputation is he at least does it, right? Like, he at least acknowledges women have a hard time and, like, writes big parts for women. If you want a part for a woman at this point in, like, theater history... There actually aren't a lot of people that literally give them lines very much the way that Tennessee Williams does. But I think that he doesn't really understand women enough to make them not flat characters. And like, I think as written, Stella is just completely inscrutable as to why she would stay with Stanley, because I don't think Tennessee Williams understands why Stella would stay with Stanley. In a weird sort of way. Because he's hot. Yes. Because they have insane chemistry. I feel like that is very, very clear in this movie. Oh, for sure. In this movie. Yeah. In the play, I think it is more about like, uh, I don't know, like the familiarity of it. She has this kid. In a weird way, I think the sort of weakest moment of it is the Stella, Stella screaming scene where it seems like she's strangely entranced by him. Like, he has her under some sort of strange spell, where instead it's like, the moment Marlon Brando comes in, in a greased-up shirt that shows his arms, you're like, oh no, I instantly get it. I completely understand this relationship. I don't actually need an explanation. Because that entrance is... Yeah, you have shown me. (laughs) The way he looks and the way he enters tells you everything you need to know about this relationship. In general, I think that Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee are just bringing so much to these roles. I think they're probably the best two roles in Tennessee Williams' canon anyway, but they both elevate them so much. Because Blanche is the only non-flat female character in terms of, like, plotting in the canon already (laughs) that kind of does any sort of action... (laughs) on her own instead of sitting there trapped by the ideals of southern society 
like actually goes out there and like tries to get a husband. Yeah, that's, that's fair. As written in the play, Stella is a completely flat character. It isn't just that that ending is nihilistic, although God, that ending is bleak when she just kind of hums along and goes along with her life and tries not to think about it. But it's also that just like, oh, she just never changes. She, that, that like, the way Tennessee Williams shows women being trapped by society is by having them just be passive and never do anything. And it, it, it kind of sucks. I think it sucks the least in Streetcar of any of his plays, but it's kind of my big problem with him and why I don't particularly like watching Tennessee Williams stuff when that was what my theater teacher dad was kind of dragging me to. Not like you must see the great plays, but just because people do Tennessee Williams a lot at rep theaters and he wants to go see his students and be nice and like has sort of a social obligation to go see them because I think he also has kind of mixed feelings on Tennessee Williams. But I just I watched a lot of it as a kid and I always kind of thought like, God, this is boring. <laughs> and when it's not boring, it's depressing. And I'll say this for this movie. It ain't boring. <laughs> actually think that of Tennessee Williams three major plays or at least the three plays that are done most often yeah I only really think Glass Menagerie is boring I think Streetcar is interesting Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is fucking bonkers yeah that's fair though I do think that again the character of Maggie is like no person is like this and I think that what you're saying about Stella in the movie being a lot less of a nihilistic character. It's not even that Stella herself is nihilistic. It's just that her unchangingness is a source of nihilism. Yeah. I really think that Kim Hunter should have all of the laurels for how much she brings to Stella, for how much... For better or for worse, the fact that the reason that she stays for as long as she does is that Stanley is hot gives her a barely implicit <laughs> real sexuality. She's the one who goes, look, yeah, he's a piece of shit, but he's hot. <laughs> Which is an unusual thing to give to a woman even today. But certainly in 1951 for a film. Yeah. And when she leaves at the end, it feels real. It does not feel like the tacked on ending that Hollywood required because otherwise it's so sad. It feels like, yeah, this Stella would absolutely do that. That there is a line. Yeah. <laughs> and that line has been crossed and she left her rich family before she can leave her shitty husband and she will do fine that attraction that sexuality to the character gives an activeness even to the parts of the play where she is in terms of physical action a passive character yes that even in the parts where she won't leave stanley you can see her like actively struggle with it and you can see it's not a great reason, but you can see a reason why she stays that is an active reason, a thing she's actively going after by staying, instead of just being too meek to leave. Yes, yes, exactly. Which I think, as written, is kind of the character. Yeah, oh, I think so. And it's interesting because Kim Hunter actually played Stella on Broadway. Marlon Brando also played Stanley. Vivian Lee was not in the original cast. Um, it was Jessica Tandy, actually, who played Blanche on Broadway. 
And it's interesting because Kim Hunter, I would love to have seen what she played on Broadway because she is playing Stella from the very first scene as the type of character who will leave this piece of shit for what he did. And on Broadway, if she did the same thing, then it makes the ending almost unearned and unbelievable. But if she didn't, then she completely re-performed this character for a different ending, and that is amazing to me. She won Best Supporting Actress, and Vivian Lee also won Best Actress. I think they have absolutely amazing chemistry, and it's interesting that so often we talk about this film as being Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando, and she is left out, and I found her to be so compelling, and I had forgotten that I always have that reaction when I watch this, where... Stella becomes the most interesting character to me (laughs) and the one I care about the most. You sympathize with Blanche. You're supposed to. She's a mess. But also you're like, she's annoying as hell. And I really would not even want to have her at a dinner party. Never mind have to put up with her living in my house. Yeah. (laughs) Not the way it goes down, certainly. But very early on in the film, you're like, this lady needs professional help. She needs the ending that happens to her in that she needs to go to a mental institution. She does not need to be pinned down after the mental institution is called by a man who rapes her and psychologically tortures her, but she needs professional help. Yes. Maybe she doesn't necessarily need to be institutionalized, but... Well, before everything that happens, but she needs some deep therapy, like more than once a week. Yeah. Something that's actually quite frustrating to me about the film is that Ilya Kazan frames this as being sympathetic to Stanley for most of the film. Oh, he's dealing with this pain in the ass sister-in-law. She calls him an ethnic slur, and there's the moment where he says, people from Poland are not Polacks, we're Poles, and really makes it so that Stanley is very put upon by Blanche, which he is, unquestionably. But the way that he reacts to her and the violence that he enacts on her is not acceptable under any circumstances, No, but is certainly so entirely outside of even if he didn't rape her the way that he goes about trying to undermine her at every turn and suspecting her of things that she didn't do even though the thing that she did was pretty shitty like she should not have been romantically involved with a 17 year old especially as a high school english teacher i will actually give tennessee williams and the text here credit Although we're going to like get into what Marlon Brando's bring into this performance because the answer is a shit ton. But like that scene that does end with him raping her initially begins where you're already like he has crossed this line and you understand this turn because the whole play he has been like, get her out of here, get her out of here. I'm so sick of her. She's just such a drag. She insults me all the time. She thinks she's too good for me. I hate her. I hate her. Make her leave. And then she volunteers to leave. And he's like, no, not until I psychologically torture you. Not until I let you know you're going to be miserable leaving. Well, and not until he physically assaults her. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That it then escalates to being even worse than that. But she is volunteering to give him what he wants. 
and he goes like, no, actually what I want is to, is to destroy you, destroy you every way I can figure out like everything short of actually killing her. Yeah. That's a really good point actually. Cause she has volunteered to leave, but the thing that makes him mad is that she is volunteering to leave under false pretenses that make her not lose face. Yeah. Where she's like, oh yeah, my admirer is going to take me on a cruise of the Caribbean. And that is not acceptable. She has to be degraded before he will let her leave. And that's the thing that's really just so horrifying about it is like dude you could have gotten what you wanted but then it turned into it's not enough just for her to be out of your house it's that she has to be completely destroyed before that happens i do think that is a thing from the play that is there like i think that's there in the text but i do think marlon brando is just jesus christ this performance it's so good and it gets so cleanly and so easily the just incredibly fragile masculinity of Stanley Kowalski. Yes. That the fact that nothing on earth is going to grate on this guy as much as somebody thinking they're better than him. And a lot of people are fucking better than him. God, the small details, like when he does that Huey Long quote and just gets at the vibe of the Huey Long quote, the all men are kings, gets at the like weird populist fascist line of it, but also completely misunderstands the line because he thinks he literally is saying men. And he goes into the whole thing about we have something called the Napoleonic Code in Louisiana, which means that your stuff is my stuff as your husband mm-hmm. and vice versa, as he says. Mm-hmm. The swagger that Marlon Brando is bringing to this performance. And I mean, there is not even a like, I can fix him. Because I do think that's like the easy version of this part. Is to like, show the harmed humanity. And the, oh, if things were just a little bit different, maybe Stanley Kowalski would be the kind of guy that you could be with forever. And it's like, no, even in his moments of shattered ego, even in the moment where he's screaming out for Stella, this guy's still an asshole. Yes. But there are layers to the way this guy is an asshole that Marlon Brando is bringing to it that are fascinating. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that there is an opportunity here to really dive into the ways in which toxic masculinity is bad for the people who are doing it. Yeah. Because it's not just in the case of Stanley, right? Like, it translates across multiple characters and even people we hear about but don't see, like Blanche's first husband, which I keep calling first as if she gets married again, her husband, her deceased husband. I actually think that's the interesting work that Carl Malden is doing as Mitch, is I think he is doing interesting work around the ways that he is standing at a remove from that toxic masculinity, but is also in it. Yes. He wants to be outside of it in certain ways. And again, that's, I think, the kind of interesting thing about the homosexuality of Blanche's husband being obscured and never explicitly stated is that it creates this situation where Mitch has a kind of false empathy where he doesn't necessarily completely understand what's going on, makes that act three turn where he becomes so cruel to her and physically abusive, if not sexually abusive, 
which I think is ambiguous, but I think that reading is totally valid. Like, I don't think that I'm going to go to bat for like, no, 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 of course not. He couldn't possibly mean that. It just wasn't quite the read I had on that scene. I thought it was so explicit, but okay. <laughs> I, 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 I think it's because I found a certain kind of tragedy to what I read that as of her confessing this dark secret of her past promiscuousness and who she had become and him being kind of into it in a certain way. Going like, oh, I could work with that. Yeah, see, I totally read it as him being like, oh, well, you're already spoiled trash, so what does it matter? You owe me. Yeah, I also completely a valid read. Either way, I think it makes that scene so tragic that there's this false understanding between them in Act 2 that kind of turns sour when he really understands her versus... A little bit more of he is actually coming to her with a genuine empathy in Act 2, it feels like. Oh, I think he is. Yeah. I just don't think that that precludes him deciding that she's dirty, I guess. Oh, for sure. Is really what it reads as. You definitely get the sense that, not that he would marry her if all things being equal, but that a huge part of the way he feels about her is people will talk. And Stanley especially. The people around him will talk. It is in that last scene, I think, is the closest to explicit that becomes. And again, none of this is to be like, and that excuses his behavior. It is just to say, like, that is the relationship he has with that toxic masculinity. I think that he kind of good Germans toxic masculinity. Mm. It may not be in him naturally, but everybody kind of pushing him towards it. He's just like, might as well. It's difficult to actually get up and do something about it. So I'd might as well just behave the same way. Yeah, or the feeling of look what happens when I don't behave that way. Yeah. So yeah, it's a bummer of a movie. For sure. It is also really well made. (laughs) It's very well made. The thing I was going to say about Ilan Kazan, when you were saying he tilts the movie a little bit too much into Stanley's corner is, I wonder how much that's him and I wonder how much that's Marlon Brando's performance. That there is this kind of natural magnetism to Stanley outside of just him being bonkers fucking hot (laughs) in Marlon Brando's performance that does make you go like, yeah, the guy kind of has a... Wait a minute. No, he doesn't. This guy's a fucking monster. Like, And I wonder how much the direction is really supporting that versus how much the direction is not fighting against it enough. You know? Mm. I don't know. I think it's absolutely Kazan. (laughs) Fair enough. I think part of it, too, actually, is probably Vivian Lee's performance of Blanche. And I do think that the circumlocuting around the story of her husband makes it... It's just so very weird. Because what she says is that her husband was so sensitive. And then they went to go dancing one night and she told him that he disgusted her and it's like but why look i'm not saying that it is acceptable to tell someone that they disgust you because they're gay but if your spouse catches you having sex with someone else regardless of the other person's gender it's a pretty natural response to be like you fucking disgust me yeah totally understandable there's not even any reference to an affair 
in the movie. So it kind of is like, what the fuck is wrong with Blanche? Like, why is she so weird? And it is to Vivian Lee's credit that she still does manage to make this woman that, again, I find to be incredibly irritating, sympathetic because you're like, oh, God, this chick needs help. I don't want to be around her and I can't give it to her, but somebody needs to take care of her and a professional somebody. But it does, I think, undermine the ability for the audience to have sympathy with Blanche in the same way, because it's like, man, you drove your husband to suicide just because you were so fucking mean to him because he was a sensitive guy? Jeez, lady. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense unless you are reading the queerness into what isn't said. It is just random. And I think I am maybe giving it too much credit by reading that in. Because I do think, yeah, probably the main reaction people have is like, that's weird, but Blanche is crazy, so I guess she's just weird. But in a weird way, it's my favorite moment of Vivian Lee's performance is that scene. Oh, absolutely. I think she's doing a tremendous job. It's just that they didn't give her the right text. Oh, no. She is playing what is in the play, even though they don't give her those lines. It's like they have put this tremendously, ridiculously high hurdle in front of her. And on one hand, yeah, that fucking sucks. Don't do that. But on the other hand, she fucking clears it. Like, Jesus. Yeah. I don't, like you say, love her in scenes with Stanley. I think she has a tremendous chemistry with Kim Hunter. But I think Marlon Brando kind of overpowers her in scenes with Stanley. And she does come off as just mean. Yes. And trying to needle this guy. Yeah. Where you're like, don't. Why would you do that? And as a result, I kind of think of the big three, she's my least favorite performance. But like, they're all good. They all deserve an Oscar. But she's kind of the most. And part of it is just Blanche as a character. She's kind of the hardest to read. She's kind of the hardest to figure out if she's giving a good performance. Like, is the play being weird or is Vivian Lee being weird? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think actually my least favorite is Brando. But I think part of that is that I knew going in the first time I saw this film who Stanley was and what would happen. So I think I'm just like resistant to him generally. I think he's giving a great villain performance. Like, he's towing that line where you do actually get a deeper understanding of the villain, but doesn't do that thing of like, well, secretly, all villains are good guys if things had just gone a little differently. Like, no, he fucking sucks. Right. (laughs) But you get this complex portrait of a dude that fucking sucks. I mean, he is. Stanley Kowalski is just a bully. Yeah. That is who he is. But you get this very complete picture of why he's a bully, how he's a bully, how he's an effective bully, Mm. why people let him bully them. That I think is a really interesting performance outside of just bringing hotness to the table, Um, which I do think is a tremendous part of the chemistry of this movie. Right. I mean, she wants to fuck Stanley Kowalski. And he looks like that, so you get it. I will go to bat for his performance, but I did not enjoy watching basically any part of this movie because it is just a pressure cooker of miserable people. Yeah, it is not an uplifting triumph of the human spirit. Which, you know, like, not every movie has to be. I'm not saying that I need 
the sound of music for every single film. But it is a rough movie to watch because it's a lot of hurt people hurting people, which can be painful to experience even by proxy. (laughs) Yeah, I think also, sorry, one last thought, and then we should absolutely rate this movie. Maybe I am giving Brando a little bit too much credit because I really did come into this thinking that it was the quintessential method acting performance in a way that was not a compliment. That when you see it out of context, him rending his shirt asunder and screaming Stella is just like, man, acting is not overacting. Like, you're here, I need you here. (laughs) And yet in the context of the film, it does build to that absolutely absurd point. But it builds to that. Yes. And it builds in a kind of naturalistic way where you go like, God, he did manage to get to an 11 on a 1 to 10 scale of things human beings would actually do. And I followed him to that 11. And I was there. He did it. That's fair. He does actually approach it from a place that makes sense. And not, how are we here? Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I will definitely grant him that. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. eight? Yeah. I, yeah. And I feel like I'm underrating it, to be honest. It is a really beautifully made movie that I don't want to watch. <laughs> I, you know, I will out and out say I was briefly thinking nine, and maybe that's still where my heart is. But there is an anecdote on the Wikipedia page that in his autobiography from last year, Woody Allen called this a perfect movie. And I feel comfortable dropping its score by a point simply because of that. (laughs) Like, if Woody Allen thinks this movie is perfect, there's got to be something wrong with it. You know what's wild about that quote, too, that they pulled from his book? I mean, there's a lot of absolute bullshit in this quote that they pulled. Mm -hmm. But the magic, the setting, New Orleans, the French Quarter, the rainy, humid afternoons, the poker night. And I'm like... You mean how it's dirty, seedy, gross, they live across the street from a brothel, it seems humid and hot and uncomfortable and horrible through the whole movie in a way that de-romanticizes the South? Yeah, I- I... Yeah, okay, then yes, that Woody Allen, none of which is what you just fucking said. (laughs) So, a thing that I did get some genuine pleasure and positive feelings from watching this is uh, understanding the O Streetcar parody musical from The Simpsons of A Streetcar Named Desire a lot better. And one of the things about that parody that is sort of a famous moment in the history of The Simpsons as a cultural institution is that it starts with this number that calls New Orleans a city that the damned call home that just rags on New Orleans for just a straight minute and a half. And the city of New Orleans actually tried to sue them (laughs) for being so mean to New Orleans. And they did straight up say, like, I mean, we were really just making fun of how mean a streetcar named Desire is to the city of New Orleans. Which it is! We're just talking about how much a streetcar says that this town sucks. New Orleans is great! (laughs) But yeah, it's just like, wow, Woody Allen, you are a creepy motherfucker. Like, you're just not human. Anyone who watches this and is like, ah, New Orleans and the rainy afternoons... 
It's portrayed as a hell realm. Yeah. And the magic, the magic is like this one woman who goes around looking like she's in full morning regalia, selling flowers for the dead and triggers Blanche to have flashbacks and anxiety attacks. Like, that's your magic? Yeah. You're a monster, Woody Allen. And, like, the reason the cinematography in this film is so good is it makes it clear that these people are in purgatory with one foot into hell. (laughs) Yes! This place is as miserable as you can be while you still keep deciding to go on. And the fact that Stanley is constantly in his undershirt in front of people, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. It looks like it's 110 degrees with 99.99% humidity. Yeah. Which, to be fair, that is something that does happen in New Orleans. <laughs> but it's still yeah. a much better place than I feel like Streetcar makes it out to be. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, eight. Yeah, eight. Um, I think if you have the benefit of, unlike us, being able to watch this movie on your own schedule where you don't have to watch it in a week where you're already exhausted and maybe kind of need a (laughs) pick-me-up. You should watch this movie at some point, but find a time that's right for you. Uh, Yeah, I would definitely say that. I mean, I think it's an excellent film. I have a lot of issues with the characters, and I take issue with Elia Kazan really making Stanley so much more sympathetic and Blanche so much less sympathetic than perhaps I would like. That does not mean that it is not an excellent film and is not worth your time. But it's the kind of thing where when you go to an article and there's a trigger warning or a content note at the top, it's not don't read this. It's, hey, maybe take care of yourself before you jump in. Yeah. This is not one of those situations like, you know, if this movie was lost to time, we would not have lost anything as a species. No. (laughs) We would have. But it is also not a like... In the way we were saying about All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard, it is not a like, drop what you're doing and go watch this movie right now. Yes. Turn your car around. Go home. Watch Sunset Boulevard. (laughs) Which, if you haven't watched Sunset Boulevard or All About Eve. (laughs) Yeah. Turn your car around. Go home. Watch Sunset Boulevard. Exactly. Yes. So next week, we are watching what promises to be the complete antithesis of this which is an American in Paris. Yeah. A delightful musical starring Gene Kelly with the music of George Gershwin. I don't know if it's any good, but... I'm looking forward to it. I'm totally looking forward to it. I'm a total Gershwin geek, so this is going to be a lot of fun for me. I like that the Gene Kelly character is apparently named Jerry Mulligan, Because I like the idea that Carrie Mulligan has like a career as an art thief that she's running away from with her acting career and like was just sort of looking around for anything to name herself. (laughs) Just uh, Carrie Mulligan. Oh, I just thought that it was that canonically Carrie Mulligan is the granddaughter of Jerry Mulligan. Also a good possibility (laughs) that she just... Is a fictional character's granddaughter somehow. Yeah, and her dad was Larry Mulligan, and she's going to have to name her kid, like, Barry. Barry Mulligan? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or Terry. Terry works, too, yeah. Oh, I guess Barry is actually a name. I was thinking, like, the fruit. <laughs> <laughs> like, if she had a daughter and named her daughter Barry Mulligan. Oh, my God, this fucking week. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. I'm so glad you went even weirder than me because I definitely got to the end of that dumb shit Carrie Mulligan thing I said (laughs) and was like, what was that? That was nothing. I need to stop recording. Woo! (laughs) Like, I'm glad you picked up the ball and we had something going. I'm always happy to yes and you. (laughs) (laughs) But for now, um... This was a movie, and I think it fixed a lot of things about the play and uh, d- did cause some other problems. Yeah, that's. I think that's a very acceptable summary. <laughs> and we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye. Whoever you are, I've always depended on the kindness of strangers.